Hello, everybody. This is Chris McAdoo, and I'm bringing you Best Behavior Creative Club, uh, this intro from my house, my home studio, um, where I'm sure many of you are listening from right now. We recorded this episode in early March, so before <laughs> the world has uh, has shut down for a little bit. So I want to thank you, uh, for one, for tuning in, and then give a little bit of background information before we dig into the interview with Kate Wolf, who I think you are going to find fascinating, um, just as a woman who has come up through the ranks and worked in the highest levels of, uh, of the creative world for some of the biggest brands out there. It's just a really great conversation, and she's just a tremendously talented, dedicated, and inspiring creative professional. So anyway, thanks to Kate for joining us. And full transparency, the audio goes a little haywire a few times. Uh, we cleaned it up best we could, but we lose Kate a few times. Sorry about that. Eventually, she hangs up and calls back in. And I just think you... I just think you guys are going to get so much from this episode. So, you know, settle in, put your headphones on, take the dog for a walk, because that's the thing you can do. <laughs> and, uh, and enjoy. Hey everybody, and welcome to Best Behavior Creative Club, an original Design Sensory production. I'm your host, Chris McAdoo, Creative Director here at Design Sensory. And I'm Brad Carpenter. And today, I cannot, uh, I just can't wait for you guys to hear this. This is Kate Wolf uh, coming to us all the way from California. She was uh, formerly the Senior VP of Client Services for RQ, um, just one of the biggest activation agencies you're going to hear about. And she's now on her own as Lupine Creative. She's worked with brands like Google Play, Pizza Hut, Airbnb, Pokemon Go, LG, um, and she's with us today. Kate, I'm going to let you take it from here. Perfect. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. We are super happy to have you. Yeah. Full disclosure for the listeners out there, I do know Brad. We had worked together in the past at RQ, um, and I am not being paid, though I will later ask for payment. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Full disclosure to caveat, we're best friends. Yeah. So that's true. We even have matching hats. It's a long story. <laughs> um, no, excited to be on the uh, show. Uh, I'm a huge marketing nerd. So anytime I get to nerd out with people that are like minded in that fact, um, it saves my wife a lot of heartache because then she doesn't <laughs> have to listen to it all the time at home. Um, so um, my name's Kate. Um, I have been in advertising for about 15 years now. Uh, I have had a very interesting and diverse, I guess, uh, experience within that industry. I hopped around at a bunch of different agencies in the beginning. Um, and luckily, uh, unbeknownst to myself at the time, was slowly building uh, a, a core understanding of each department because I jumped around from each department. And that, I think, is what has helped me get to where I am today, um, mostly because I learned at the working levels of those departments how to do the work and how to speak that language, um, which has made me um, lucky in the fact that I can uh, jump around a jack, a master of none, but a jack of all trades kind of person within this uh, space. Um, so yeah, excited to be here, guys. Well, 
Actually, that's a great jumping off point. So, Kate, you're talking about how you uh, you jumped around to different positions. Um, there's a lot of folks that uh, are talking right now about the strength of the generalist, right? Someone that understands the power of all those different people, um, processes, and departments working together. Um, what is, I guess, kind of moving moving forward with Lupine Creative and the things that you want to do? How does that put you? Um, at a professional advantage and a creative advantage to to other folks that maybe pigeonhole themselves into just saying like, I'm just a writer or I'm just this or that. Yeah, uh, I definitely think the rise of the generalist is coming up. Uh, I'm feeling it in my own career uh, and have for a couple of years now. Um, so I feel very, very lucky and, and fortunate um, for for that experience to be able to kind of pull in that skill set from each separate department. Um in terms, so in my journey, I started actually as a creative. Um, I am creative in some ways, uh, for sure, um, but not necessarily something that I thought would be the space that I would, the sandbox in which I would only play. Um, and luckily for me, I probably would have stayed in that that department and that career trajectory and path um, if it wasn't for the crash of 2008, yay, um, which, you know, mid-level copywriters that write Dunkin' Donuts spots are a dime a dozen and uh, easy, expendable people. Um, so I suffered pretty heavily from that crash at the start of my career and the early onset, just when I was just past, you know, entry level position and starting to really get my foot in the door um, and create my own book. Um, those jobs just started to dissipate and become extinct pretty quickly. Um, so with that, I had to kind of very quickly change my skill set, um, which jumped me to uh, moving to actually first production. Um, and I did some work very quickly in production. I went back to production later. I liked it. I liked the idea of like being the person that actually makes at the end of the day, like how do I, that's a great idea. How can I make something tangible from that thought? Um, which, which was very exciting, but I actually quickly found an opening in strategy and that's really where I think and where I kind of ended up in the end, but, um, where I think I really got excited because uh, as a true nerd, um, I love puzzles. I especially love language puzzles. So talking through creative ideas and saying, yes, and what can we do with that um, was my favorite part of creative. So how do you take that and you put real data behind it and real insight? And then you say, great, creative is subjective. Strategy is not. Let's build a foundation for our subjective thoughts to live in a way that can't be tarnished or can't be, you know, I like blue because I like blue. Well, everybody here likes pink, so it doesn't matter. Um, I really like that part of the, the work. And then I went back to digital production, was pretty heavy in that. And then I found a home in account service because it turns out when you are um, assertive is the word I'm going to use um, and clear and directive, uh, it works really well in account service. Um Instead of being kind of a liaison between the client and the people, it becomes more of a uh, captain of the ship. And that is where I found my home for the majority of my career post um, entry level and mid level. Uh, and that is where I stayed until I moved to RQ and I played this kind of hybrid role, um, which was my first foray into that. Uh, and loved it, loved it, loved it. My, my experience there was fantastic. And um, the people I met, including Bradley, uh, were um, some of the best people I've met in my journey. Um, but it was definitely, you know, time for me to take that, ex that experience and um, generalist mentality and apply it to something else. 
So that's where I'm at now. I don't know if that answered your question directly. It might have been a long-winded way of just like talking about myself, which uh, I'm known to do. You know, it's <laughs> it is a it's a perfect answer because I think particularly in you know the marketing and creative industry, um, there's very rarely a straight line. You know, like where you start out from where you end up. So I think people really enjoy hearing those stories um, and moving around from, you know, copywriter to uh, to strategist to service, you know, all those kind of things. What are some of the biggest um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face, like either personally, professionally, kind of like as you're moving through through those ranks? Oh, um, well, let's start with uh professionally first because that's probably an easier answer um i came from big agency and big agency is run in silos um they do that because in my personal opinion if i was to project that onto the world right now um they do that because back when aors agencies of record were in existence there was funding to support basically offsets of clients departments. So marketing would have an advertising arm and that would operate like a full marketing department that would be in-house externally. And those are like the, you know, I was lucky enough to work at them, like the heyday of Shia Day LA when they had every big brand and, you know, the place was 1300, 1300 people deep and it ran like a small city and it was really fun to work there. Um, but in the absence of, and, and clients and brands, they dictate this. So like in the, in the rise of the jump ball, in the fractured off projects to diversify creative thought, to groove more autonomy, to in-house and take autonomy away from external, um, that model has disintegrated um, in a way that it's no longer possible to keep these big agencies. But when they were alive, the silos worked well for a program like that because you could charge more fee and structure more people to maintain a brand presence and voice across, you know, for any brand. So let's say it's Visa or Gatorade, just as two shy of examples. Um, They had huge, huge teams. We're talking Visa was 13 account people deep. I would say 150 all in. They were huge. And they were all broken into pieces. Now that works really well when you are operating like you're a company yourself as just a siloed marketing department, right? Um, Because then there are clear roles and responsibilities because the volume of work and the level of effort that has been created by the agency is extremely high. So, you know, something like a strategy might take a boutique agency to pull together in three days, which is, let me tell you, a shitty strategy. So you need more time than that. But like, you know, it might take more time where it might take two months back in the early 2000s at Chiat or the, you know, uh, or at the DDBs or any Omnicom publishers agencies of the world. Um, so that's, that is, that was a model that worked the, the time frame of which it lived. But as those jump balls started to go, as jump balls started to rise and those AOR started to go away, those fragmented departments really started to rub up against each other and create big problems. So an example of that is account people in those positions tend to be actually what I said before, a liaison between the client and the, and the company, mm-hmm. which meant their job was to shuttle information back and forth. Um, that's never how I saw account service. We're laughing because that's all I say all day long. I'm not an order taker. I'm here to help you. I'm not taking orders. I say it all the time. 
Yeah, and so that's a big problem. Um, that that's an old model that's still in some places in existence, and it's hard to get away from. And so, to answer per- personally and professionally, where that where I got rubbed there is, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not good at being put in a box. I never have been. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to put those barriers down pretty quickly professionally, and then create my own working environment or my own roles and responsibilities. That then I t- I fragment pieces of the job away from other people, which per- personally creates tension on a one to one level. Um, my big thing from big agency and which really was the catalyst to move me out of that space was feeling that I was being pigeonholed to a certain type of person that could only operate in a certain type of way, um, which was incredibly frustrating. Uh, I now lead creative production. I have for uh, almost six years leading whole departments of creative production and strategy. Um, but when I was a senior level day-to-day person at bigger agencies, I was told my job was to take notes. And that can two big things, right? One, it diminishes the value of the individual by putting somebody in a in a box, right? And that that applies to everybody. It's like, why can't creative people write emails? I don't understand. They can write, they can write your campaign, but they can't write an email to the client. That's nuts. Um, so like looking at both sides and saying, okay, it, you can't tell somebody they're this and not that. Like they're always this and never that, unless they tell you those things. You can't, you can't put those labels on other people. So um, it's about knowing your strengths and weaknesses. So that was, that was a big thing. That's one, you know, created some tension for me. And two, on a personal level, it often created tension from a one-to-one because it always felt like I was overstepping. And when you constantly feel like you're putting people uh, on their heels, you're never, you're not going to be as productive because you're going to have to first navigate the cloud cloudiness of it before you get to the work. And that is a level of unnecessary and honestly, um, deterring process that doesn't that does directly affect the work and doesn't produce good happy working environments so you know the the silos value somebody and they and they and then they they make you less likely to do better work so why would you come to work and work hard if nobody's like behind it you know and what kind of output are you going to make when you feel like your opinion doesn't matter yeah well you you keep saying that you're a marketing nerd but when somebody does something to make you less nerdy that that's a that's a problem it makes it makes it not fun anymore i like one of the tenets of this new company that i'm starting is curiosity and i think that's the most important thing in anything you do so i think curiosity drives passion i think it's the the root and catalyst of everything so i want to make sure whatever we touch in the future we are curious in all aspects of the work whether that's creative design how to be the most efficient uh, pro like how we how we're the most efficient in the process part of it. How do we deliver and track results? Are we curious about what the end result might look like so we can get ahead of it and have the foresight to put up the systems to track it best? Or what do we want to prove? You know, and those are all really kind of forward-thinking curiosity elements where we do the research and, and, and figure out, you know, what is actually going to work, is it possible, et cetera, and get as excited about whatever we're talking about as the person that's paying us to do so. And I think that's really a big differentiated point for where I'm going. I love it. I always, with people, the people working here, that sometimes they get, they get cynical and I hate cynicism. And so I love the curiosity element because nothing kills any campaign or any, any passion more than cynicism. So as long as you just stay curious and 
interested in what you're doing. It's it's great. I love that. Well, I, and I think it speaks to also like our jobs as if you you know as marketers as communicators. If you're you know trying to sell an idea or a product or whatever, like our jobs are fun, and they should be. You know, uh, and and I think it's so easy to forget that. I want you to dig in on on that uh, side because you have been in the middle of it for so long. You're talking about the sort of changing model of the industry, right? I think that's really interesting, particularly now, like to be able to come into you know this is it, we're in 2020, but um, you know the changing nature of the industry. Where do you see things going? I mean, as you just started your company. I mean, where where do you hope to be in, you know, a, a year or two? So what what I'm trying to start is a little bit different. I, I believe in great creative, but I also believe it doesn't have to be as precious as the way it's structured currently. And that's a big, yeah, see that face? That's the appropriate face. And here's what I mean by that. I believe that creative ideas can come from anywhere and people with real creative foresight and vision, they can, they can hone and tweak them to land based on how an audience is going to perceive them based on what you know. Um, but I don't believe that you need to, I think there, and I think there are ways in like, listen, you're writing a television spot for the Super Bowl. You need to be a professional creative. There's too much money at stake and too much space. And I truly believe in that. If you're writing a 360 campaign platform for a, for a company or a big brand, you need to be a professional creative. That's the appropriate way in. But there are so many elements now in the world where you can be creative and act on behalf of a brand. I mean, all the way down to a single tweet, right? And that is where I think there is flexibility on creative process and approach that only betters the work and it feels more collaborative. And so what I'm trying to do is shift that way of thinking and point it towards culture. And because now culture and what I mean by that specifically is the things that we talk about or view or consume as a community on every level. So whether that's the culture of multicultural, and we're just talking about the African-American audience, or if it's the mass culture play, what is currently on trend. But remember, the people that drive trends are a subset of our population. They are not all of our population. And so there are ways looking at that where there, these are pre-existing human behaviors. That's all it is. It's strategy and it's insight on how people are behaving and acting. And you can find ways for brands to interject themselves in a way that doesn't feel, I hate the term organic. I don't mean organic in a way that doesn't feel forced, but also feels like you should be in that conversation. And I think that's, and I, and I think the three ways right now that I can help with that is through experiences, meaning creating physical moments, right. Or, or digital moments where somebody's interacting on behalf of a brand or the topic of conversation is that brand, right. Um, where they walk away with, with positive recall because we are in an experience economy. The second one is individuals. I use that word deliberately. I do not like the word influencer. I think influencer is extremely polarizing today. Um, I'm not talking about fans and followers. I'm, well, some individuals might have fans and followers. I'm talking about people that actually shift culture in terms of tastemakers, are in power positions. They, not necessarily, they might have an Instagram channel, right? But they might not. 
right? That doesn't make them less powerful um, with recommendations and, and who they're talking to on an everyday basis. And then partnerships is basically my B2B, but for culture. So finding people that have audiences or a prepaid that have got their foot in the door with a certain group, finding ways to create partnerships, you get that borrowed audience and you plan. And those are all creative thoughts, but they're not precious. I don't know every audience. I don't ever expect to. I mean, how create like what kind of person would, you know? So we bring I bring in different points of view, different thoughts into the space. And I truly believe that good ideas can come from anywhere if you practice a yes and mentality which means there is no actual bad idea. You can say, that's interesting, not the way I would have gone. How would you get there? How'd you get there? I want to know. And when you dissect things like that, that's where you're going to find those nuggets. But really where I see it going for me is culture orientation with everything we do. And that might manifest itself in a deliverable that looks like a television spot, but probably not, right? Um, but it might it might find its way. What's that digital experience look like? How are people, I mean, in the world of Corona right now, I will tell you, I have tremendous anxiety because I specialize in bringing people together, mostly physically. So what does an experience look like digitally when we have an epidemic? Like let's think through like that, how you create community platforms outside of our social channels that people actually will go to. There's an interesting conversation happening right now on that particular topic about um, from folks that are uh, differently abled or communi- or immunocompromised in the first place right. that are essentially saying like, hey, guys, we've been having virtual conferences or, vir- you know, virtual opportunities for years. And we've been asking for this, you know, um, for years. And so I think, you know, being being forced to deal with this is a real, you know, is a real issue. I think, you know, what's interesting is I think not that digital conferences or experiences are, um, are not possible. They absolutely are. I think that you're going to run into what I call the accountability issue. When you physically go to a space, you are accountable for attending that event. You traveled there. You made a level of effort to do something. You have signed up. You have paid money right? It becomes an accountability thing to yourself. Am I going to do this? Look at online classes and look what happened to college students that had the option to physically go to class or or take the course online and how they actually did that. The level of learning, depending, some people would just use it as an excuse to get a credit. So like, think about that and I'm, I don't think it's solving the how do we build a digital space that people go to. That's easy. I think it's how do you make people accountable to show up? Hmm. And I think that's where you're going to get drop off. And I, and I, I mean, look at masterclass. Masterclass is unbelievable. If you don't have that, you should absolutely do it. It's really, it's really amazing. It's completely amazing. Oh, I love it. Okay. But only a certain type of person actually signs up and, and takes that information. In. Right. A lot of people read it like they read the headlines. Like I don't read the article. I read what's in the news feed. And if you allow people that barrier of entry, that very low barrier of entry without any crossing point or any problem when you don't go all the way through it, the likelihood is you're going to get a lot of people that are going to surfacely attend, but then they're actually not going to attend. And then what what does that do for the content or platform or message that you're trying to get out? Right. Well, no. So if folks aren't smart, if folks aren't accountable, 
you know, for that attendance or like you're, you know, Brad, you, you touched on just cynicism. Yeah. Right. Over. Um, and, and, and then you, Kate, you talked about how folks are just signing up for the class to get the credit. Right. Cause this will get me my, this will get me the point. This will be, get me the credit um, or whatever. So I think you are asking accountability for yourself and for your team, for your creative professionals, but you're also asking a lot of accountability and responsibility from the audience, right? Yeah, so being able to take, like if you want to learn something, if you want to to be part of something, then as that experience, you are also on, the, on one end of that, right? Right. So we've talked a lot about um, industry-wide, like the changes uh, that, that the industry is going through, as well as um, the steps that a creative professional can take to be both accountable for their content and responsible for their actions. So speaking of those actions, Kate, I want you to like give us give us a little bit of a highlight reel. What are some of the um, experiences that you have had uh, over the course of your career that really marked a turning point or were just plain great to be a part of? That's a tough one for me because I, I I've been very fortunate to have a lot of opportunity thrown my way. It's um, almost like serendipitous. Um, I would say. Okay. So here's where we start losing her. Uh, it gets a little messy, but just hang in there. And I, <laughs> I promise it clears up. In the beginning of the craziest things I ever worked on. Um, I was a part of the visa real time. Uh, back in 2011. Um, when, where we would take real footage during the Olympics that actually like Michael Phelps winning and breaking the record for, for um, gold medals, have that footage in real time, pass it to NBC in a brand new commercial and roll it fifth, uh, less than five minutes after it happened. It was a level of like roided out Olympics. I use that term deliberately. Um, that I, I just think that was really, really fun and exciting. And it felt like we were in a new medium. Um, and that was my kind of first foray into big TV as well. Um, so that was really, really interesting. Oh, you break it up? Oh, wait, no, we, we're, they were, we're just, we're, somebody was waving and they're looking at us and I had to wave back. It's like, I'm friendly, you know? Uh, you are so fun. It's the Southern than you. I, I try. Is, is my accent back? Yeah, a little bit. It's a little bit. <laughs> Wait a second. Does that mean that when you went out to did, when you went out to California, did you like hello everyone? Uh, yeah, wonderful think, to meet you. I think I just I'm just kind of a white trash, and when I yeah, he was like, hey, what's hey, up? Hey, what's up? <laughs> hey, how about some how about some fish tacos and some In and Out? Anybody you were down Valley, for some In and Out? Valley Brad. Yo, you guys know the special menu. It's totally <laughs> And I'm like, what? Aren't you from the South? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm from the South. Yeah, yeah, totally from the South. <laughs> Do you guys know the menu? <laughs> oh my God, Valley Brad. <laughs> oh, they man. call me. They call me Hollywood Brad here. Everybody does. Hollywood Brad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, anytime you burn Brad, I'm uh, I'm a big fan. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. I'll now tell him multiple that. times. That's from Hollywood day. Brad. Oh my gosh! Okay, so we're talking about so the uh, the 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 visa. I think that is that's incredible. That is like taking full advantage of the of the tech of the creative of like kind of everything that's going on. That's so cool. I have a couple other stories um, about like what it was like 
Like I have an inappropriate story, but I don't know if that is good for you. Oh, abs- oh absolutely. Oh, tell that one. I got I got a good one. I won't tell you the brand that we were working with, but we were working with a really, uh, I'll give you a hint. It was uh, 2009. Um, it was the largest digital payment brand in the world. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. So you, you figure out who that is. Um, but what we did was we brought the entire um, executive and C-suite board of that brand to our office. We built out a space for Starbucks right at the time that Starbucks transitioned their logo to the logo that we all see and love today of more of a stencil silhouette mermaid as opposed to the black and green 90s Starbucks logo. You guys remember what those were, right? Oh, yeah. And to make these rooms on these giant printers, basically wallpaper that goes all the way around the room. And we built out different, like we built like a logo that was like five feet by 10 feet of Starbucks and we put it on the wall. So when you go into the room, it feels like that's actually where you are. We, we changed out the furniture. So it feels like we're actually in a Starbucks, all the cups, et cetera. Um, I would say to do one of these days, there were about seven direct leads and probably 30 people working to make this day happen. Um, And the level of approval was extremely high, right? Because we're talking really big people coming in to do a full immersion day. And it was part of our new business strategy. Um, There is a moment in your career that you go, holy shit, we're all getting fired. And I don't know if it's happened to you yet. Every, every day in my career. <laughs> it happened to me for the first time in this moment. I learned later that in marketing, that happens often. But this was my first real, well, I'm just going to go pack my desk and this has been a good time. <laughs> I what walked, we, we had built out all these rooms. So we have like Starbucks and Nike and Apple and all your classic ones. Um, um, and I remember about the the clients were already in the in the building, and I went into the Starbucks room, and I remember sitting in the chair, being like, "This looks amazing." We had the quotes, we had the picture of the founder, we had this giant logo up on the wall, we had like like reasons to believe for them. Everything it was a full like full team effort across the agency, and I get in there. I'm talking to a friend of mine. We're looking at the room, checking the final tweaks. And I took a sip of my coffee and I looked down at the logo on the Starbucks and I go, oh my God, this isn't the right logo. This is a logo that shows a mermaid with two large breasts completely exposed. This is a parody logo. And then I looked up at the five foot by eight foot printed logo on the wall. There she was, all three feet of her boobs hanging out. And then I looked at all of the branding and we had printed, I would say at least $2,000 worth of printing materials with just a pornographic mermaid. Um, And and the logo and the the logo, the tagline for Starbucks, um, at the time that they were testing was something around the line of like good to the very last drop, um, which was just underneath this corner. And I remember thinking, fuck, we're getting, we're all getting fired. And then You're I done. ran around trying to figure out what we do. And the reality was it was too late. I stepped out of the room as they walked in through the other door. And I just waited to see if anybody noticed. And we sat in that room for an hour and 30 minutes 
going through everything and not one person said a single thing. Nobody noticed because it was the brand new logo. Now at the end, when the clients left, I walked the president through and I go, what do you see in here? And she was like, it looks great. And I was like, what do you see in here? And she was like, holy shit. And I was like, they are. (laughs) Um, So that is definitely one moment in my job where I thought, well, can't believe I get paid for this. Um, But, but you didn't get, but you didn't get fired and everything was fine. Right. Oh, it was fine. Um, on a more on a on a more serious version of of you know crazy work experiences, I um, I worked on Theranos, and I don't know oh, if yeah. you're familiar. Oh my! Oh dear Lord, we have to talk about Theranos. Yes, yes. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes, right? Yes, uh, as E A H is as I like to call her. Um, I won't get into too many details there because we are awaiting a very big trial. Um, but there is a book called Bad Blood, which is written by a man named John Carreyou that covers the whole saga. And it's going to be made into a movie, I believe, with Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and I am in that book because I was the, yeah, <laughs> that's the appropriate face. I, 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 remember, uh, I remember that. I remember that. I remember when you got the email. I okay. was a whistleblower um, for shy it. So I was uh, one of the, the only person to leave shy it because they thought it wasn't real and really make a stink about it on the way out. Um, I quit a whole bunch of times, which is a whole nother interview for a whole nother time. Um, working there was insane at the time. And I worked there for, I worked on Theranos for about two years okay. and launched, launched their brand. I was in charge of all of their, um, I was lead on all of their website construction, their sales <laughs> their um uh dot md which was their emr system electronic medical record system uh back end and their dot me application for consumers to actually get their data and like a, an app a mobile app and an and a, um, web responsive app uh it was a wild ride um what was the what, what was the moment what, what was the moment that you're like oh this is this is complete bullshit. Like, what was that moment? So here's the thing with Theranos. Everybody wanted it so bad. So when I first jumped yeah. on it, I thought it was going to be my career marker. Everybody did. I thought, mm-hmm. well, this is an opportunity. This is my Apple Steve Jobs moment. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a huge part of it. I'm going to steer it. I'm going to give everything. And at the time, I was young. And if you read the book by John Carreyou, he does a really good job of identifying patterns. I thought I was special. Turns out I was a pawn. Um twist. Uh, but I, she basically picked really hungry young people that were going to give up everything for them uh, and for this mission to make it work and do whatever it take, took to, to make it happen. Um, and I definitely at the time hit that criteria. And so she wow. opened, like, I will tell you, as sad and true as this is, without Elizabeth Holmes, I would not have the career I have today because she opened a ton of bureaucratic red tape, red taped doors for me um, really quickly. She exercised a tremendous amount of power at Shiat. Um, so during my time there, uh, I, in the very beginning, I was so invested 
When we worked together at RQ, that was a part-time job in comparison to what uh, Theranos was. And what actually ended up happening was I got so, so hyper-focused on doing a good job. I started to unearth a lot of problems. <laughs> and when I started to do that, I started to ask very basic questions and could not get answers. Um, her younger brother, Christian, uh, was the lead of their marketing team with two other boys named Dan and Jeff. Um, we called them the Thera Bros because they, I think they all went to Yale. I can't remember. Very nice dudes um, that had one year of working at Goldman Sachs experience and we're coming in and trying to manage a multi-billion dollar marketing. marketing. You know, it was nuts. They were so um, underqualified, nice, smart, incredibly smart people. But the reality is in this industry, experience really does matter because there are a lot of different parties that play in. And if you don't actually understand, and I'm just talking about marketing. Uh, If you think about health, you're really gambling with some pretty high stakes. Um, But so I I think the first one that was happening was we got this claim from her that one of the websites say that it was 90, I think a 92%, 98%, I can't remember, um, percent more accurate than other lab tests, 92%. And I said, that's not puffery. That is a claim. You need to give me substantiation to prove it, or I can't release it, or then you need to indemnify us for releasing it. Basic. And they said to me, we'll get it to you. We have this whole thing from um, John Hopkins and all this stuff. So they, they kept t- dangling that carrot in front of me for a long time. And then on a call, I held her accountable to answer it in a group setting. And she gave me this answer. Uh, and I'll never forget it. Another moment where I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to get fired. I said, you need to explain that to me in, a, in layman's terms because we're talking to layman. Uh, right. And she said... 92% of errors come from human claims in the lab. And since we have fully automized our laboratory test to eliminate the human factor of carrying the vials back and forth, our, our test is 92% more. So Kate breaks up pretty terribly here, and we wanted to just give you the recap. Um, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos makes a statement that her medical tests are 92% more effective because they've, quote, taken out the human element, um, which obviously Kate has a problem with. And I said out loud without a beat, like an idiot, that's a leap. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Kate hangs up at this point and calls back in. Perfect. Okay. So basically, you know, that was my first moment where I thought like, Maybe this isn't what I'm being told because everything I'm being told is coming from the same source. Um, and that was, and that was like an underlying thought that I had. It wasn't something that I was acting on yet. Um, and I will tell you right now, I stayed with, with this team for a very, very long time and I loved it. Um, I loved working on it. I learned so much stuff um, until I really, really hated it. Until there was that moment where I thought I'm defrauding the nation, and I've, I've come to the conclusion that I, my intuition is right, and I need to get out of here. Um, and I equate that feeling to uh, most women can understand this. I think men, some men can, but, but I truly, I think most women can. When you are walking down the street at night and you are alone, and you feel like somebody, there's somebody walking behind you, and you feel in your gut 
that, that you should cross the street, you go, cross the street, cross the street, cross the street. And sometimes you push that feeling down. You say, no, I'm not going to do it. Nine, nine times out of ten. And it's totally fine. Right? I yep. had that feeling at the bottom of my stomach for two years. Wow. An event, it took me two years to cross the street. Um, and that's the easiest way I can describe what it felt like because I truly didn't know. And I didn't know until it all came undone. And that was months after I left where I thought I'd given up the biggest opportunity I've ever had with the most money at the time I ever had. And I was throwing it away and people couldn't believe it. People couldn't yeah. believe that I was quitting over this. Um, but I had to. I couldn't sleep anymore. Once we went live, I thought, if I'm right, I'm a horrible person. And if I, you know, and that's a, that's a hard thing to, to balance. And, you know, and the worst part is like, we, the team on that was the best, one of the best teams I've ever worked with. They were the best in class. So I knew we could sell it. It was a good idea. And it was like powerful and impactful and like philanthropic in certain ways. And, and, you know, everybody on that team was one of the best, and I'm lucky to work with them, some of the best creative minds, strategic minds in the world. And so I knew if it was real or not, it was going to sell and it was going to sell like hotcakes. And we were going to push that through and it was going to be the huge trend and no matter what. And I was willing to sacrifice that knowing that like no matter what, it was going to be the most visible work I'd ever created forever. It was never going to be bigger than that ever. Um, but could I reconcile with the fact that it might be horrible and I couldn't. And so I had to get out. And that there were like a series of elements that were similar to that 93% moment. But I will tell you, this is the moment. The big moment was um, figuring out that they didn't know how to ship blood, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but there were lots of them and I, and I had to get out and I, and I, and I did, I was very thankful, but in the beginning it was hard to watch because I thought I made a huge mistake. Like pretty yeah. women made a huge mistake and uh, <laughs> watched, tough, like... watched all of the press come out. And I remember sitting in my house going, oh man, what have I done? It's yeah. all positive. And then eight months later, it just, in a, in a way I never thought it would, came. I mean, I'll wow. tell you, there is no better feeling than the feeling of being that right, being $700 million right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and I think that speaks to, you know, you were talking about that accountability. I think there's a whole other conversation to be had about creatives and the things that we do and that accountability for the, you know, the, the, the goods, you know, the goods that we're, that we're selling, the messages that we're carrying, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, you know, again, I've been lucky. And then, you know, when I left, it was funny. When I left Shia, when I left Shia, I, I went to a boutique agency. And I thought, I'm going to take a break. This is going to be lower level. Right. Casual. It's great. And uh, we pitched Pokemon. And I was like, it's going to be easy. Nothing to see here. Huge <laughs> game. And then we were like, oh, just kidding. We're working on this top secret project called Pokemon Go. It's dog food beta, but it's going to be a really big deal. Do you want to work on that? I was like, yeah, it's a kid's game. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> and that is the other. So I went from Fahrenheit to Pokemon Go to what I imagine should have been a retirement home, but instead uh, RQ. So this is how I've been living uh, full throttle, I guess, for the last couple of years. <laughs> I mean, what a what a career! I mean, that's 
It's well, impressive. It is very impressive from all the different angles. And you have, it seems like you have experienced both the highs and the lows. Um, and you have taken, I, I think a, a big thing here that I'm, you know, that I'm hearing, um, regardless of your move from position to a different company, to all these different kind of things, to your involvement with some of the biggest brand launches and gigantic challenger style explosions of the last, you know, 20 years is that you have taken responsibility for yourself and for your career. And I think that's something that is, I mean, it's hard to do, you know? Well, as my mother always told me, the only person you have to live with for the rest of your life is yourself. Mm -hmm. So make sure you put that person first, even sometimes in the worst sort of ways and then sometimes in the best sort of ways. You have to make those decisions because if you are unhappy, everyone you touch will be unhappy too. So that's kind of how I live. <laughs> and I try my best to make sure everyone's happy, but I do, I do, and selfishly or not, and I think I only say selfishly because it's like, you know, the unconscious bias to women's work, to be totally honest. Um, it's a, uh, you've got to make sure that you're taking care of your, yourself. And I have actively tried to make sure that Every night I go to sleep, I feel good about the day I finished. Um, and when I stop feeling good, that's when I start making moves. That's amazing. Kate, from, <laughs> from copywriter to launcher of gigantic uh, brands to behind-the-scene whistleblower <laughs> to now. Um, well, is this, and this is going to be your, uh, your first solo, your, your first company, right? Lupine Creative? Yeah, we are uh, three weeks in, so we are an infant of the utmost. Um, but yeah, very excited about it. Uh, we're starting small. I don't know how we'll scale it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm excited to see where it goes. But I'm, 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 again, I'm a I follow the behavior. So if the, if the industry is shifting, like if I get a brief from a client, I follow the, the behavior of who they're trying to reach. It's the thing that dictates what we do. And the same applies to how we're building this company. But the audience here is brands. So the behavior of brands is how I will scale and be, I will make this place as malleable as possible because uh, as we all know, marketing is an ever-changing, always iterating landscape. And so the second you feel like you're the smartest person in the room, you've already been asked to leave. You need to make sure that you're constantly learning everything you possibly can and paying attention and being curious in every aspect of what you do or, or you've already failed from the start. So we're going to be hungry. We're excited. Um, and that's kind of, I think everybody's got that kind of eye on, on our output for the people that are working with us so far. Right. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, where can people learn more about uh, what you're doing, Kate? Well, I launched the site today. Uh, so we have uh, a website called um, lupinecreative.com. Um, it's uh, a very nice, again, be kind to us. We're on our infancy stage. Um, but it does kind of give you an overview of how we approach the work and how we operate as a team um, and our expertise of where we kind of play. But that's, that's the central point right now. And then um, hopefully as we grow, you'll see more of us around the world. But for the time right now, we're small, nimble, and fierce because we're wolves. <laughs>
small, nimble, and fierce. Oh man, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you guys, uh, and, and for you up and coming, uh, you know, young creatives, regardless of where you're coming from, mm-hmm. I think the the things that I will take from Kate: be accountable, be responsible, and above all, be willing to show up. Right. And then on a personal note, I wouldn't be sitting here with you, yeah. Chris. I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't have a career without Kate Wolf. So thank you for coming on our show, but thank you for everything that you've taught me. I really appreciate it. Tom, Brad, we're best friends. We're, 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 <laughs> we are such besties. <laughs> well, this is... You are the, one of the best gems I've ever met in my journey. And in addition to that, he makes a mean pina colada. I do. I really do. If, I think one day you should share that recipe, though. though I'm pretty sure there's. <laughs> it's. I wish I got. I wish I got to take credit for it. It's Cheesecake Factory's recipe. <laughs> 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 it's. It's not mine, but. <laughs> it's Kate tested and Kate approved. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been Best Friends Forever Club. <laughs> this is. Hey y'all! I hope Chris, you're now in the fold. Sorry. Yeah, he's in it. He's in it. I made. Oh man, I made the club. Oh my gosh. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed this as much as I did, as much as as we did. I thank everyone out there for listening to Best Behavior Creative Club. If you did enjoy, please go on to uh, Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Share with all of your friends, neighbors, uh, enemies, acquaintances, even. You know, um, anyway, just super happy to have had Kate Wolf on today's episode. We'll also have some more information in our show notes um, and uh, just all kinds of great stuff. Anyway, I'm Chris McAdoo, uh, creative director here at Design Sensory. And I'm Brad Carpenter. And this is Best Behavior Creative Club, an original Design Sensory production. Thanks, y'all.